This morning we're looking into Romans chapter 8. I invite you to turn there even now. Page 944 in your pew Bible, if you're using that. Uh, but Romans 8, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. And we'll tell you in advance this morning something that I say often in the proclamation of especially these New Testament letters that our intent today is to send you forth from this place rejoicing in your salvation all the more deeply. You might think, wow, that seems to be a theme quite often, uh, a focus quite often in the ministry of the word. And I would say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. There is no gift that we have ever received that, it, that goes beyond this particular gift in terms of its value to us. In fact, we could add together all of the other gifts that we have ever received and they wouldn't even begin approaching the value of this one. And yet somehow, somehow we can still grow accustomed to it. We can... We can uh, sort of take it for granted. We can feel like, uh, uh, well, I'm not sure it's something we would want to share that broadly or, you know, it's a little bit embarrassing in our day to be identified as a believer or (laughs) so many other things. And folks, we just need to have the Word of God obliterate that perspective. And that happens as we rehearse again and again the uniqueness, the beauty, the glory of the salvation that we have received, and that will surely be our aim again this morning as we move through this text and seek to go out from this place with this text having strengthened us and encouraged us in the way that it was intended to do, the way that it was written to do. So let's pray toward that end, then let's read this text, and then let's look into it together. Heavenly Father, we do surrender ourselves to you yet again this morning and ask that your word would do its work in our hearts by your spirit. Your spirit who is mentioned no less than 10 times in these 11 verses that we're about to look at. Father, I pray that we might recognize the beauty and depth of meaning and significance and life change that is effected by receiving your Holy Spirit as your promise, your pledge that the salvation that you have promised will be delivered and surely will not fail. And then, Lord God, we pray not only that you, by the presence of your Spirit this very day, would enable our understanding of your word But Father, I pray that it would cause us to go out of here rejoicing such that there are few things that we would rather talk about and indeed nothing that we would rather talk about than the glories of the salvation that is ours provided through your Son who became flesh and took our sin upon himself that we might be reconciled to you And then clothe us in your righteousness so that we stand before you, before your law, with the same perfection that he exhibited. Help us, Lord God. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen now to the Word of God. And in order to appreciate the opening of this chapter, I'm going to read the last two verses of the previous chapter. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So reads the word of God, and I believe all of us would want to say amen to that passage. Amen. We all know what it's like to be facing some bad news that turns out not to be so bad after all. We all know what that's like. We're at the end of a semester. Our students know what that's like, God willing. (laughs) You're fearing the grade that's coming on this exam or in that class, but then when the report comes in, it turns out you did far better than you anticipated. That's an easy one, isn't it? But it can get harder than that. A strange lump shows up somewhere on your body that doesn't soon go away. The doctor can't identify it and orders a biopsy. After a short season of waiting that feels like an eternity, you receive the call. All clear. 
a good feeling, isn't it? We're coming up on Memorial Day. Soldiers and their families know all about this. A plane that's transporting your loved one goes off radar without warning in an unstable area. The word spreads quickly in the close-knit community. And the nearness to Memorial Day stands as a present reminder that these scenarios don't always work out well. But then the plane lands safely at its appointed time and place, and it ends up just being instrument issues. You feel the relief. We know the relief, the the thankfulness, the, the joy that comes when we're fearing or or even just expecting bad news and receive good news instead. That just sets us up to appreciate this text a little better because even the best among such scenarios can't hold a candle to what we read here in Romans as we transition from chapter 7 to chapter 8. By the way, do you understand can't hold a candle to? I I looked that up this week because I wrote it down and I thought, I wonder what that means. (laughs) It, It turns out to be a sort of a 17th century artisan imagery talking about an apprentice learning a craft from a master. And early on in the stage, the gifting is so far beyond his that he can't even hold the candle that lights the work that his master's doing. It's just an image that says how far away we are from the ideal that's being realized. The best among the scenarios that I just shared can't hold a candle to what we read here in Romans as we transition from chapter 7 to chapter 8. It's hard to know how to put this in words. I don't often wish I were Spurgeon, (laughs) but this morning I do. This morning I do. What a gift of words he had to communicate the truths in God's word. Here in this passage, we're under the condemnation of the law and hopeless based on any resources that we possess or even understand. There's our standing. That's the worst news we could ever receive. As a matter of fact, to use a metaphor we've already used, you could add together all the rest of the bad news you've ever received, and it wouldn't equal this bad news. This is the worst news possible. We are under the condemnation of the law of a perfectly holy God and have no resources whatsoever to do anything about that. In fact, we can't even conceive of any resources that could do anything about that. That's the truth of where we stand. Yet, we're assured here that not only have we been freed forever from all condemnation when we trust in Christ as Savior, it's still true even when we continue to battle against sin in this life. 
So the worst news that we could possibly imagine is followed in the next verse by the best news that we could ever imagine. In fact, this news we're told, Ephesians chapter 3, is even beyond our imagination. We cannot conceive of the deliverance that we have received in Christ and all that it means, free from condemnation of the law, even while we continue to battle sin. When we were dead in our transgressions and sins before receiving that gift. We go from unimaginably bad news that is irresolvable to unimaginably good news that is unassailable from one verse to the next. This is an amazing text of Scripture. This is good news beyond all imaginings. That's what we're looking at in Romans chapter 8. So let's look into it under three headings this morning and just walk through it. I'm going to give you this outline and then I'm going to pay no attention to it whatsoever (laughs) after that. It's a good outline that gives you the flow of the text. But if you're taking notes this morning, just move on into the next section as we come to the verses that are under that heading. All right? Because I won't make much out of it between now and whenever I finish this message. But the outline will follow is there in your bulletin. Freedom from sin and death in Christ. That's verses 1 to 4. Then freedom to please God in the Spirit. That's verses 5 to 8. And then if the Spirit is in you, you will know this freedom. That's where Paul finishes in verses 9 to 11. Now really 1 to 17 work together as a unit. Really, 1 to 39 work together as a unit, but Romans 8 is not a passage we're going to cover in one Sunday, all right? We're going to actually divide it into four parts. I'm going to do the first two for you, 1 through 11, and then next Sunday, God willing, 12 through 17, and then in the following two Sundays, Pastor Kip is going to take us from 118 or from 818 through to the end of the chapter. So that's the next four Sundays, God willing, as he enables. So let's look, first of all, into this beginning, freedom from sin and death in Christ. I will begin by saying that our title for today's message comes in the opening words of the passage. There is therefore now no condemnation. And the theme of these first 11 verses, and indeed what follows, could not be better stated Then we read in the opening two verses. If you want to write down a theme for Romans 8, here it is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's all we're learning about this morning. That states the whole picture and the rest of it's just pulling it apart and understanding the anatomy of this statement and how it works and what it means and what it doesn't. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Would you read that with me? 
It's open on your lap in front of you, God willing. If it's not, it should be and need to be in order to read it along with us. Let's read it together. Verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Amen? Amen. I'm reminded even as we're reading this, Romans chapter 8 is the first whole chapter of the Bible I ever memorized as a child. We memorized it as a family. I don't know if my mom remembers that, but uh, working through family devotions, we memorized Romans 8 together. And I'm pretty sure it's in the King James Version. Um, and I'm not going to recite it for you this morning. <laughs> but what a blessed passage this is. It's surely good news. Amen? And there's likely only one question that we might have, one question that perhaps might arise as we hear these opening two verses, and that is, what is the law of the spirit of life? Those are the words we don't quite capture as they pass by. The rest of them, amazing as they are, are pretty easily understood. But what is the law of the spirit of life that has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death? Well, as we've seen, Paul generally uses this word law, this Greek word namas, to refer to the law of Moses given at Sinai. My, most frequently, that's what he's talking about when he refers to the law. It's referring to the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. But that just won't work here in this passage. If we tried to suggest that somehow Paul is talking about the law of Moses being used by the Spirit to bring about life in us, then at very least he'd be contradicting the very next statement that he makes there in verse 3, where he says, God has done what the law, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. We know, and we've known from the middle of chapter 3 on, that his salvation plan is different than somehow making the law doable. But just in case we've missed that, Paul makes it clear here again. And the law of the spirit of life then couldn't refer to the spirit sort of enlivening the law and helping us become acceptable according to it. Rather, we need to recall that we've also seen Paul use this word namas, law, differently at different times in this letter. So while it's usually pointing to the Mosaic law, it doesn't always. Sometimes it refers to a power or a binding authority. We saw this so clearly and probably most clearly illustrated back in chapter 3, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? Do you remember when that question was posed right on the heels of hearing the gospel in 3, 21 to 26? After hearing that salvation is entirely of the Lord, that he's provided this propitiation in Christ, Paul poses the question, then what come, becomes of our boasting? He says, it is excluded. By what kind of law, he asks? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. There's a place where Clearly, Paul's not referring to Mosaic law. He's referring to law or using this word law with echoes of the Mosaic law in our heads so that we'll catch the connection, but he's primarily talking about something fundamentally different. 
power, binding authority, that role which the law of Moses played in the life of Israel, but now more in principle, more generalized power, binding authority. It seems like Paul is using namas in the very same way here. And once again, now in contrast to laying alongside the law of Moses. So the law of Moses will be in our minds, but we'll recognize that he's talking about something different. In the words of one commentator that make it very helpful, Paul is saying here that the actor in this situation is the Spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit. It is God's Spirit coming to the believer with power and authority to bring liberation from the powers of the old age. That's the age of Adam and sin and death condemnation. God's Spirit coming to the believer with power and authority to bring liberation from the powers of the old age and from the condemnation that is the inheritance of all who are imprisoned by those powers. We can see that as he moves on into verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He's liberated us from the condemnation of the law. But he's done so through what he calls the law of the spirit of life. And the fact that the law of the spirit of life here in verse 2 has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of both sin and death, that points primarily not to either our justification or our sanctification, but to the very thing that this commentator just identified, that we are freed from the reign of Adam and sin and death, and we are freed into the realm of Christ and righteousness and the spirit and life. He continues on, as such, it significantly advances this statement the discussion of chapters 5 through 7 by introducing the Spirit as the key agent of liberation from the old realm of sin and death to the new realm of righteousness and life. So he's using this word law to talk about a principle that has freed us from our bondage to this old reign and is enabling us now to live in this new reign of Christ, anticipating the day of his return. Verse 3 says, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, something that we've seen ever since the middle of chapter 3, this statement isn't new, it's review about all that Paul has covered over the last several chapters, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And he did so, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from bondage to sin and put us in the way that he's talked about it before, human terms, remember, in bondage to righteousness, in bondage to Christ, a delightfully freeing bondage that produces eternal life. 
So he did this in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This, my friends, this is the stunning reversal of the gospel. Putting away the old and initiating the new. This tells us what we receive in place of the condemnation that we escape by faith in Christ. What we receive in place of that is the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. And Paul is using the description of the law of the spirit of life to capture the power and authority of that transition. Through the giving of the Spirit, through receiving the Spirit, we're transitioned from the one to the other, and our condemnation has now been replaced by righteous standing before the law. We're granted the standing before God of having lived in perfect obedience to His law, just like Jesus did. So in the place of condemnation, that's what we have. And the Spirit is one who brings that about. Again, as a commentator put it, as our substitute, Jesus satisfied the righteous requirement of the law, living a life of perfect submission to God. In laying upon him the condemnation due all of us, God made it possible for the righteous obedience that Jesus had to be transferred to us. Therefore, in summary, Christ becomes what we are so that we might become what he is. The great exchange, the turning point, the reversal, whatever you want to call it. This is the glorious accomplishment of the gospel. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said, for our sake... God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's another place where he talked about this dramatic reversal in clear terms, putting it all together in one thought. All at once, as we trust in Christ, he becomes guilty of everything we ever have done or will do and even guilty of the sin into which we were born as fallen human beings. And in that transaction, we receive the righteousness of Christ that is credited to us. The theological term is imputed to us, given to us. It transitions us from death unto life. It, it, it moves us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, the way he talked to the Colossian church about it. We receive what Jesus is. All Jesus is. And he becomes guilty of all that we are, including receiving the penalty of it on our behalf. That's breathtaking. And we're just four verses in. So our freedom from sin and death in Christ isn't just the removal of our condemnation restoring us to some spiritually neutral state. 
but it includes the removal of all of our guilt before God. All of our guilt, such that we stand worthy of relationship with Him. Think about that. Worthy of relationship with the Holy God by virtue of the work of Christ. So Paul refers to all believers here in verse 4 as ones who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, some believe this statement means that the ministry of the Spirit in the lives of believers is to help them live according to the law. Not as though the law now needs to uh, save us or set us right before God, but as though the law, the revelation of God's standard, is now enabled in us by the means of the Spirit. Others believe this means that Christ has met the demands of the law on behalf of all who believe, such that we receive the standing of having been faultless according to the law by virtue of what Jesus did. Some even talk about it as focused on the law, although I don't think that's the best way to understand it, such that all that the law demands is met by us through the work of the Spirit. I don't think the focus, though, is on the law. I think the focus is on the believer who's freed from the law. So with those two that we mentioned, the ministry of the Spirit enabling us to live according to the law or Christ, having met the demands of the law on our behalf, I would say either of those is possible. I would go even farther to say nothing prevents both from being true. But I believe the latter is Paul's main point here. I think this is what he wants us to understand and appreciate about the work of Christ. Those who are freed from the condemnation of sin by the work of the Spirit in their lives are empowered to live according to the values of the new age under the reign of Christ. We are set free and declared not guilty according to the law, and then we're enabled to put it into practice and to live it out. Jesus accomplished all this for all who believe. Paul then gives the basis for this affirmation in the very next verses, beginning in verse 5, continuing on in the same vein, really. In short, he lays out a contrast between the life that we have in the flesh and the life that we are given in the Spirit as we receive the saving work of Jesus by faith. And here in verses 5 through 8, The focus is more on what we're freed from in order to walk by the Spirit. We're freed from, verse 5, minds set on things of the flesh. And we're granted in place of that minds set on the things of the Spirit. What Paul is saying here is that by virtue of the work of the Spirit within us, our thinking, our, our focus, our aims, our priorities are reoriented by the work of the Spirit through the gospel to reflect the thinking and focus and aims and priorities of Christ's reign. We now live as citizens of his kingdom 
embodying, exhibiting the very qualities of Christ. We live in that freedom. Enabled to focus on the things of the Spirit and to see them increasingly begin to become characteristic of us. I hope you're sensing with me the snowballing effect of what's going on in these verses. As Paul just describes and unpacks what he's And now, through those, and through what follows, enabling us to pick up more and more and more on what this freedom from condemnation actually entails. Our thinking, our focus, our aims, our priorities are reoriented by the Spirit to reflect the thinking, focus, aims, and priorities of Christ's reign. And that's, that's the notable difference Right now, there is therefore now no condemnation. This is the notable difference now. Now in Paul's argument, now in the lives of any who have trusted Christ as Savior and who are living in the realities of Paul's argument. This is the notable difference now between death on the one hand and life and peace on the other. Being hostile to God on the one hand versus submitting to him on the other. We might say using the the language of verses 7 and 8. The notable difference between being saved versus being unsaved. If we want to just summarize it and put it in categories and in language that we're more familiar with. Paul is talking here about the difference between having trusted Christ as Savior... And not having done so. That's important as we continue to move. Because this is a passage of scripture that can be used, even though it's supposed to awaken rapturous joy and thanksgiving and confidence in the life of the believer. This passage of scripture can often have the reverse effect. Such that I can walk away wondering, am I really walking in the spirit? Or is this given to me to recognize the fact that I'm not? It's not. It's given to recognize the fact that you are. So hold on to this one. It's important. What we're talking about here is the difference now that is clear between death on the one hand and life and peace on the other. Hostility toward God versus submitting to him. Saved versus unsaved. That's what we're talking about. And bottom line, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a a summary there in verse 8 of what we've already covered in chapter 7. But, he goes on to say, those who are in the Spirit can please God and do. Verse 9, you, however, moving from third person to second, moving from talking about them to talking about you, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. You you belong to this new age of righteousness and life, Paul's saying. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And here's the problem. Here's what generates insecurity. Here's what generates fear and a missing of the point. 
of what Paul is saying here. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit if, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so many go away thinking, wow, which side of the if am I on? So we need to pause here and understand what Paul means, how he's defining being in the flesh as compared to being in the spirit. We just did so, but we're going to have to do so again in order to appreciate what he's saying here. We get our clearest hint of what he's saying as we watch verse 8 move into verse 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. So what we see here first is that he's not talking about those who are not walking in victory over sin as compared to those who are. He's talking about those who've trusted in Christ as Savior versus those who have not. So when he gets to the if clause here in the middle of verse 9, our proper response to that if is not to begin inspecting our lives to see whether we're saying no to sin consistently enough to prove that we're walking in the Spirit. That misses Paul's point, misreads the if. Our proper response to it rather is to ask ourselves, have I placed my trust in the finished work of Jesus to deliver me from the condemnation of sin and death? That's hearing Paul's statement rightly. If the answer to that is, yes, I have trusted in Christ, then the Spirit of God dwells in me in the way that Paul is talking about here. But if no, if I haven't trusted Christ as Savior, then Paul clarifies at the end of verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone who doesn't is unconverted. That's his point. Receiving the free gift of God in Christ that is effective that is enacted in us by the ministry of the Spirit. We are born again of the Spirit. The Spirit does the regenerating work within us. If we have received that, then we are in the Spirit in the way that Paul is talking about here. It's not a contest to see if we're saying no often enough. So should we go ahead and sin that we might receive more grace? Answer, by no means. No, we've been freed from it. But having been freed from it, press on in your battle against sin, but recognize that having been cleansed by faith in Christ is what puts you in good standing with God. It's not living perfectly according to the law. Paul goes on in verse 10 to say, but if Christ is in you, if you have trusted in him as Savior and Lord, if Christ is in you, and I love the fact that he moves back and forth between Spirit and Christ here, recognizing not that they're one and the same. They are two separate persons of the Trinity, but both are actively involved. Our salvation is accomplished through Christ, and it's enacted by the Spirit. And so he can move back and forth between these titles, between these descriptions. 
in this passage. But if Christ is in you, if you have trusted in him as Savior and Lord, although the body is dead because of sin, he says here, which just means that you're still living in the realm of Adam, your body will die even though you've received life in the Spirit. So if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. He's saying you will inherit life if you've trusted in Christ, even though your body dies. You will inherit life and everything else that Jesus has purchased for you and that the presence of the Spirit with you has confirmed. You will receive it. How can you be sure? I'm glad you asked. Verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, He's not going to make your mortal body live forever. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. He wrote that clearly to the Corinthians. But He will raise your mortal body that has died and been laid in the earth just as He raised Jesus' body. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Again, good news. Amen? And the point we want to make this morning, folks, is that you can be sure of that. You can be sure of it. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You can be sure of that. As sure as the resurrection of Jesus Right outside our sanctuary doors here, we have a reminder of our greeting on Easter Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's more than just a statement about the fact that the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday morning. It's more than just a rehearsal of the fact that the eternal Son of God cannot be captured by death, but will rise in defeat of it. And sin which brings it about. Victory over sin and death. But it's more than just that. Here Paul is telling us it is the indicator of the fact that sin and death have been defeated on the basis, on, 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 the, on behalf of all of those who have trusted in Christ as Savior. Your faith is in a crucified, resurrected Savior. Then your sin has been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. The wrath of God against your sin has been absorbed in the body of Christ and He has been victorious over sin and death proven through the resurrection and that very resurrection will also be yours by faith in Him. Praise God. Amen? Praise God. You can be sure of that. And that's what Paul is writing here in chapter 8. 
This is the very plan and purpose of God that's being celebrated here. It's the very plan and purpose of God to, recognize, to, to reconcile image-bearing rebels to himself. And he enacted that plan and purpose at great personal cost. So surely you don't have to worry that he won't fulfill his plan and purpose to the praise of his glory in the life of each and every one of us who've trusted him as Savior. You don't have to worry. Just a few verses later, and I can't believe I gave them to Kip to preach. (laughs) No offense, brother. (laughs) He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If Jesus didn't withhold his son but inconceivably sent him to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh, we read right here, and for sin. And by doing so, he condemned sin in the flesh for all who believe and raised him from the dead in proof, in demonstration of his power to do so and of the victory over sin and death that was being won. If he has done that for the believer and then applied that to our account, Why would we ever think that there's some form of stumbling in this life that we can do that's going to negate that? That's going to neutralize it? This isn't written to generate doubt. It's not written in order that we might focus in on that if and think, wow, if I'm not doing it, it can't be done. It's not going to be done. I'm not sure. Hmm. It's not what it's for. The if is there to say, if your faith is fixed in Christ, this is a done deal. This is accomplished. This is your inheritance. It's the plan of God. He's enacted it to the praise of his glory. He's going to bring it about. The glory of God is exhibited by the fact that some will savingly believe. Wow, when we get to chapter 9, that's such a rich, rich part of the argument. And you don't have to worry that your ongoing battle with sin in this life is somehow going to negate this or neutralize it. Just press on in that battle against sin because may it never be that we pursue sin in order to receive grace rather than receive grace in order to escape sin. Just press on in that battle, but press on in absolute confidence, my friends, Absolute confidence that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that it will be done and that you cannot undo it. You struggle with that insecurity, lean into Christ, trust Him, acknowledge as Martin Luther did as he felt that continuous attack from the enemy. When he would say, you know what, enemy, you're, you're accusing me. It's far worse than you imagine. I'm worse than you know. You don't even know what's in my thoughts. You just see what I'm doing. It's far worse than you know. 
but Christ has saved me. Christ has absorbed the wrath of God against my sin, and I stand justified before God. Press on in the battle, my friends. Press on in the battle. And then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will surely give life to your mortal body through his spirit. Your resurrection will be a hearty amen to the resurrection of Jesus in which you placed your faith. Pray with me now. And then let's remember the body and blood of the Lord. Heavenly Father, what a glorious text of Scripture you've put before us here in Romans 8. So much richer because it stands on the foundation of Romans 1 through 7. But Father, still mind-blowing in its implications and we haven't even gotten to the part that most thrills us in this text. Not in any sense to diminish what we are looking at this morning, but this is the beginning of the argument, not the end. This is where you've begun through the pen of Paul telling us about the implications of our saving belief. And it continues to roll over the remainder of this chapter and what follows. Help us, Lord God, to go from this place today marveling at our salvation, thankful to have received it by faith in Christ. And then, Lord God, freed freed from the fear of man, from the fear of this age, to celebrate it, to the praise of your glory, with all who will hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.